Hey guys, it's Sabby Sabs, and I have a very special guest with me today. Her name is Marianne Williamson. She is a best-selling author, a political activist, and a spiritual thought leader, and she was a candidate in the 2020 presidential election. Welcome, Marianne. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So before we get started into today's discussion, Marianne, can you tell everyone just a little bit about your background? For the last 37 years, I have had a career as you could describe it as kind of a non-denominational minister, somebody who does the same work as a clergy person, but is not coming from any particular denomination or even any particular religion. I talk about universal spiritual themes and how to be a more loving and forgiving person and how this transforms our lives. And I have written uh, 14 books and I've given many lectures and I have founded uh, nonprofit organizations. Uh, I've done a lot of work, particularly during the AIDS crisis, um, anti-poverty, uh, racial healing. Um, and then I ran for office in addition, because I believe that what's missing from our political conversation is a kind of integrative whole person perspective that every other corner of our uh, of American civilization seems to have embraced by now, whether it has to do with medicine or education or business or healing, we get that we're not just economic beings, we're not just material beings that we have psychological, emotional needs, spiritual, that we live within a moral universe. And so when I look at politics, I think of our collective, all the politics is, is our collective behavior. And because of my work, because of my own practice as a human being, I know that there are certain principles that I have to follow in order for my life to work. And all that a nation is, is a group of individuals. So if certain principles, no matter how it, it, money cannot, money does not compensate for lack of generosity. Money does not compensate for lack of goodness. Um, money does not compensate for lack of ethics. You can't say as an individual, it's okay. I was an, not an okay person because it made me money. You're, that's called a jerk. That's called an unethical person. So we should look at the collective behavior the same way. And that's why my political interests organically flowed, not that I wasn't always interested, but my actual political activism flowed from my conviction to certain principles about how we live as human beings. Awesome. So today, Marianne and I are going to talk about reparations. Now, Marianne, you were the first candidate on the debate stage to bring up reparations. And it was a significant part of your platform. A lot of people may not know this, but you actually started advocating for reparations back in the 1990s. Can you tell everyone why you decided to get involved with reparations? Well, I wrote a book called Healing the Soul of America. And in, in doing so, I, it's like I took private American history classes. I hired someone who actually tutored me in American history, the constitution, all these things. I mean, I, I had studied what most people have studied, but I needed to take a deep dive. And then also I was 
because I was writing about spirituality and politics, I looked around and I said, well, where is the material? And I realized Gandhi said it all. Dr. Martin Luther King said it all. So when I took a deep dive into American history and I took deep dive into Gandhi and King, I went, whoa, whoa, it's right there. It's, not, it's like right there if you actually are looking at it. So I, like I said, my, my whole conversation is how do we apply the principles of right living, not just to an individual, but to, to a nation. So for an individual, it is a spiritual principle. If you are a Catholic and you go to confession or a Jew on the day of Yom Kippur, it's the holiest day of the year, you have to confess your sins. In AA, people have to acknowledge their character defect. And so from that, I realized for a human being, you can't go forward until you clean up the past. Mm. And the same is true for a nation. You just can't go forward to clean up the past. Then I studied more. I realized, uh, and I am Jewish, I realized that is, uh, Germany has given $89 billion since World War II to Jewish organizations. Now, that doesn't mean the Holocaust didn't happen, but it has gone far. That full mea culpa, including economic restitution, has gone far, I think, towards not just financial remuneration, but towards emotional and psychological reconciliation uh, between Germany and the Jews of Europe. Yeah. You know, G Jews don't sit with Germany. They sit with evil could happen anywhere and it happened to us. That's a big difference. And so I realized that America, if America is to heal, the book was called Healing the Soul of America. And this is, um, the debt that is owed. It's like on the on the uh, debate stage when I think it was Don Lemon said something about like it's some gift or charitable giving and it's a debt that's owed and there's a big difference. And I've become over the years particularly interested in the difference between race-based policies and reparations for that reason. Race, well, several reasons, external and internal, there's a difference internally because reparations carry an inherent mea culpa. It is an inherent acknowledgement of a debt that is owed and the willingness on the part of a people to pay it. Mm. Very well said. Thank now, you. and talking to like some of my colleagues, like there seems to be different like interpretations of reparations. Yeah. Some people think reparations is just a check and some people think reparation is for improving the black community. Um, you mentioned a plan that you had for reparations when you were running for office. Could you talk a little bit about that? <clears throat> My plan is to create what I call a reparations council. And that would be anywhere from 20 to 40 people. I think a lot of that would be worked out with black leaders. I mean, first of all, we have to really get clear here. If you owe someone money, you don't get to tell them how to spend it. So it's really important that it is the, the, the black uh, leadership that is, makes up this, this reparations council. And that the reparations council, in my opinion, should come from a broad array of leadership. It should be business leaders, it should be political leaders, it should be cultural leaders, all, all kinds of educational leaders. It should be all kinds of people who are very trusted by both black and, and I think white Americans too. White Americans are turning over a whole lot of money. Okay, my idea is I had started with two to 500 billion. 
I was convinced. Now, if you actually took, there were historians say there were anywhere between four and five million formerly enslaved people uh, at the time of emancipation. So, and they were all promised at the time 40 acres and a mule for a formerly enslaved family of four. So clearly, if, you would, if you're doing the math, I mean, you would clearly be talking about trillions of dollars, but we're also talking about making something actually happen. Mm -hmm. I had originally started with two to 500 billion. I was convinced by black people during the campaign that don't say two to five, just make it five. And I also realized that as the consciousness changes, I could see 500 to a trillion. I don't, I think a lot of that has to do with, do you want to get it done or do you want to keep kicking it down the road in the hopes the number will get bigger as consciousness develops? But consciousness, as we know in the United States is going both ways, it's getting better and it's getting worse. Yeah. So I would say in the, in the, to me it was in the tone of 500, but I'd be, I, I, I would love to think we could get to the point where we could be talking 500 to a trillion. Then it would be up to, and, and I thought dispensed over, dispersed over a period of 20 years, and that it would be up to this leadership, the reparations council to determine where that money went. That's why the selection of these people is so important. Now, I already talked about the internal difference between race-based policies and reparations. I'd like to talk for a moment about external difference between race-based policies and, and um, reparations. Race-based policies, there's more, you have to look deeply, let's deconstruct what racial injustice, not, not what racial injustice, what economic injustice is. It's not just a withholding money from people. It goes deeper than that. It means a withhold of the opportunity for your own wealth creation. So for instance, when I was on my uh, campaign, gentrification, and I saw you say something about that. This is a huge, huge, huge issue. Okay. So if it's only race-based policies, it might be, oh, nice Mrs. Morgan, She's in her 60s or 70s or 80s, and she's lived in that apartment for 30 years, and it's not fair, and we should make it so that her, uh, her, apart, her rent doesn't go up. With a reparations council, you have, and there are some extremely, extremely wealthy Black people in America, mm -hmm. and there are some extremely wealthy real estate people in America <laughs> that are black. So with, with, with you know, $500 billion to spend, you have a real estate committee. And a real estate committee that has billions to spend isn't gonna sit there saying, oh, well, let's make it so that Mrs. Morgan's rent doesn't go up. They're gonna look at a city and they're gonna go, let's buy those five blocks. Whole different thing. Whole different thing. Agreed. Um, so I, I live, I'm in Boston and we were going through a lot of that with the gentrification. Um, but you mentioned General Sherman and I want to get back to that point because a couple years ago, the Boston Globe did a study mm -hmm. about the effects of racism on Black Bostonians. And some of us still are in shock by what they found. Uh, but what they found is that white Bostonians have a net worth 
of 247K and black Bostonians have a net worth of $8. Now to your point about General Sherman, about the 40 acres and a mule, when you think about what General Sherman like promised and what didn't happen, when you hear those numbers that come out of Boston, how do you feel about that? Well, I also know that if black families created as much wealth as, had as much wealth as white families in America, our economy would be $1.5 trillion larger. This is, this is a withhold to all of us. All, doing right by black people in terms of uh, reparations, for instance, would grow the economy for everyone. So when you ask me what my feelings are, my first feeling is this is ridiculous. My second feeling is let's look at what's really going on here. People who have a problem with black empowerment financially at the deepest level, whether they're conscious of it or not, are not coming from a resistance to sharing money because you can prove to them you'll make more too. They're coming from a resistance to sharing power because money brings power. And from a psychological, spiritual perspective, what's happening is a subconscious fear that if I let you have power over me, you would treat me as badly as I treated you. Now, this is deep, deep, deep subconscious stuff, I realize. And that's also why I realize why it is understanding the conversation at that deepest level and, and forming a politics where the conversation goes that deep is the only way we're gonna get out of this. Um, as I see it, and this is not just about black people, this is about any kind of multiculturalism, uh, multi-ethnicity, et cetera, re religious pluralism. The deep down subconscious contest is between those of us who look at 50 years from now and 100 years from now and think, wow, how exciting is this? My God, there's Asian, there's Latino, there's Black, there's, there's European, there's African, there's Latin American. I mean, it's so exciting. And oh, we're going to mix up everybody's gene pools and everybody's talents. And oh my God, we'll have such brilliant kids. And this country will be so amazing. And then there are those who were brought up to believe that their power lay in the fact that they were white, mainly men, Christian, and that that's America. They were taught that's America. It was never supposed to be, the principle was never that it was supposed to be America. Mm. And so they, on some deep level, that's not even conscious. I mean, they have conscious bigotry and racism, but then there's a deeper panic of annihilation because they feel that's all they have. And it is the fault of the political establishment, Democrats as well as Republicans, that it is all they have. Mm. So in any kind of situation like that, it's easy, Hitler did it. You scapegoat, no, your problem is the Jews, your problem is the black people, your problem is the Mexicans. White America, the poor people in white America have not been treated well over the last 40 years at all. But others were scapegoated who were treated even less well. So the situation is complicated, obviously. Mm, very well said. 
Um, we were talking yesterday, a couple of friends of mine, about the, the lunch counter sit-ins in Greensboro, North Carolina. So we were talking about the fact that when people talk about the civil rights movement, sometimes it's spoken about in the context, it's like, this was a long time ago, whereas that was actually only 61 years ago, which really wasn't that long ago, like when you think about it. Um, what do you think about, when you think about like the Jim Crow laws, what do you feel those laws had an effect or how did they affect white people and black people even today? Well, okay, the Civil War is over in 1865, right? 1865, and then you have 12 years of reconstruction. During that time, we saw what was possible actually. There were black senators, black congressmen, et cetera. As soon as the, and, and during that time, of course, the Northern, the, there were Union soldiers stationed in the South to ensure that um, slavery would not be reinstituted. As we know, the white racists, and remember these people had, had slavery and they, they not only had grown up in slavery, but I mean, once again, this is interesting because we now have the psychological and emotional astuteness to like think this through in a whole different way. So I'm raised with slavery. We lose the war. I have nothing. So where's racism going to go? It burrowed down even deeper. So the stroke of a presidential signature or constitutional amendment could end the external institution of slavery at the time, but it couldn't end racism. Mm. Racism burrowed down even deeper than you get Ku Klux Klan, et cetera. So once Reconstruction was over, the Black legislatures, as you well know, passed the Black Code laws to ensure subpar economic, political, and social opportunity for Black people, which means that you have two and a half centuries of slavery followed by another hundred years of institutionalized uh, violence towards Black people in America. Now, I'm 68 years old. I remember, I grew up in Houston. I remember this building that's still there that um, it's the, called the Medical Towers building. And I remember we go to the doctor and in between the bathrooms, it, there's a sign, colored bathrooms downstairs. And I remember asking my mother and I remember my parents explaining to me and my parents were very liberal people, you know. They were very against it, but my, I remember my parents explaining it. So I remember that time. I was a little girl, but I, I remember because Dr. King was killed in 1968. I was 16 years old. Teenagers are hip to what's happening. They were hip to what's happening then. Now, in 1964, you have the, the Civil Rights Act that deconstructed, uh, you know, um, dismantled segregation in 1965, the Voting Rights Act, which guaranteed universal voting accessibility, although they've now, since 2013, even been chipping away at that. Mm -hmm. If Dr. King had lived, there's a third piece of the stool that was simply never accomplished. If you, the argument I would make to people in my campaign is if you've been kicking people for 350 years, that's what we're talking about here. You, if you've been kicking someone, you owe it to more than help them get back. You, you, you owe it to them to do more than stop kicking. You owe it to them as well to help them get back up. 
So how do I feel? I realized that that hundred years of segregation, Jim Crow, I mean, you have to really, I don't say that to you personally because I don't think any black person fails to realize that. Anybody who was insisting, I'm gonna stay at the lunch counter, was risking getting, be getting beaten up or worse. The bravery, the courage. Now, the one thing I'd like to say is that my experience with audiences and this includes running for office in some of the whitest states like New Hampshire, Iowa, is not that the average American is racist, so much as that the average American is deeply undereducated and underinformed about race in America. So mm -hmm. I'd come in and I'm known as the reparations lady and they're sitting like this, I don't know, I don't know about that. I mean, that's been over a long time. And then, I give just a little five minute thumbnail sketch. The first slave ships came over in 1619, almost 250 years, four and five million, what they were promised, the black code laws, another hundred years, German, this is what it accomplished, this is what wasn't accomplished, the economic gap never closed, Doctor, uh, Germany having paid 89 billion, the fact that in some ways we've gotten worse, mass incarceration, et cetera. By the time I'm finished with my little thumbnail sketch, white audiences are jumping up and down. Yeah, yeah, reparations, reparations. And this is the problem I have with the political system. It doesn't lead. The political establishment doesn't lead. It just thinks it knows what people want rather than articulating this is what should be. Politics should not just be what we think we can get past. The, I believe in my heart that if the American people are told this is the right thing to do and that's why we should do it. And by the way, everybody's going to make more money. And by the way, your grandkids and my grandkids our grandkids are going to be so much better off because this baton will stop. We will stop this toxic baton past generation after generation, and we can be the generation that accomplishes this. I believe that there is more than a constituency for that. I think there's a yearning of the American heart that will one day carry the day. Well said. Um, when you think about the education system, the public school system more so, do you think that there's more that the public school system could do um, educating everyone about this? Okay. First of all, to withhold education from a child is a passive form of oppression. It is completely immoral that there are, that the primary way that we pay for uh, public education is through property taxes. That means a child who grows up in a financially advantaged neighborhood has a very good chance of a very fine public school education in America. But if a child is growing up in a less advantage and they get less of, 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 a, of an education for the most part, we have millions of American children who go to schools where they don't even have the resources necessary to teach every child to read by the age of eight. If a child cannot read by the age of eight, the chances of high school graduation are drastically reduced and the chances of incarceration are drastically increased. We have millions of American children living in what's called America's domestic war zones. A study recently said that one quarter of all the girls in Chicago's public schools would be diagnosed with, with a, a form of PTSD 
as severe as veterans coming back from Af Afghanistan and Iraq. That's why when I was running, I wanted a department of children and youth. We should massively front end our resources in this country towards children. Mm. And a lot of kids have been so deprived even before they get to school. Even when the establishment politicians talk about we need pre-K, some of these kids are messed up even before. We need such a complete, you know, children can't vote. They're not old enough to vote. They're, they're not a constituency. They're not old enough to work, so they have no financial leverage. So their, their needs are routinely neglected and practically disregarded, sidelined, peripheralized by the political establishment. If we had decided 40 years ago, if there had been this huge change, we're gonna massively fund in resources, the direction of our children, including our education system. And one last thing I'd like to say about that, when I saw those rioters, at, you know, the pictures of the rioters on January 6th, I kept thinking to myself, and I think many people did, these people don't even know where they are. You have 11 states in the United States because this is determined by states. That's part of the problem we have. So we have 11 states that don't even require half a year of study of American civics, American history, or American government. And this is a problem, just the level of ignorance that so many Americans have about what we're supposed to be. You know, if you don't learn about the Bill of Rights as a child, you don't know as an adult to be horrified when it's under an assault. This is why Dr. King said, we're not here to ask for something new. We're asked to cash a check. The check's already in our hand. We want to cash it now. Mm. A lot of people may not know this, or a lot of my viewers may not know this, but originally I wanted to be a public school teacher and I wanted to teach in inner city schools because I thought I could make a difference. And when I started doing observations, what I found is that a lot of the leadership in those schools really didn't want the teachers to make that much of, of a difference. And some schools had this rule where you had to get into the union in a certain number of years. If you didn't, you were out. And it was just really frustrating for me. And I just kept thinking to myself, how is it that this is allowed? Like we're supposed to help educate students. We're supposed to help them learn more. And then we have the people above us telling us that, well, no, don't worry about those kids. That's a lost cause. Just focus on the other students. That was really shocking. And so, and you also have the core, the standardized testings, which have done terrible damage. You also have when they, when they switched to this emphasis on science and math and technology and engineering, it was at the expense of the humanities, at the expense of culture, at the expense of art, and at the expense of history. And we're paying a terrible price in America today for all of that. Agreed. Um, now, I know you mentioned mass incarceration, and I noticed in your book, A Politics of Love, you mentioned that mass incarceration means that we're sliding backwards. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, when I was in college, we had 300,000 people in prison in the United States. We now have over 2.3 million. Uh, private, the private prison industry, as we know, is one of the largest urban industries in the United States. So once we started privatizing uh, prisons, then it became big business. And the idea of a profit center based on human suffering is so immoral. It's quite obscene. 
So that means that the harsher prisons, and this is what the 90s was all about, the 80s and the 90s, the harsher the prison sentences, the more money there was to be made. Isn't that horrifying? Plus the racial disparity. If you have a black person and a white person who commit the same crime, the black person statistically will get 20% uh, longer a prison sentence. And also on drugs, black people and white people take drugs at the same rate. And yet uh, the black person is liable to be prosecuted. The war on drugs has got to stop. Agreed. Uh, Marianne, I have one more question for you. Um, when you look at the country today, you know, it's very divided. Um, I think we can all see. Um, what do you think we can do as Americans to help everyone heal and come together? What we're doing what you and I are doing, having conversations with people, try to put out the truth as you understand it as best you can. Um, last night, uh, I don't know if you watched the, they took to the Capitol, the remains of the Capitol police officer. And when President and Mrs. Biden walked in and it was a very somber moment and they paid their respects, to see that level of dignity and that level of honor when dignity and honor has so been missing, it's moments like that It'll take a while, but we will heal from moments like that. We will heal from, from demanding, not just asking for, but demanding the kind of legislative initiatives and proposals um, that will actually move us towards greater justice. And to move us towards greater justice will have to mean more than just going back to where it was before Trump got there. Because the years before Trump paved the way for Trump. Um, so, and, and we have to keep the, the peaceful protesting up, even when it's, you're demonized for it. Um, and we must continue doing things like you're doing, doing things like I try to do, that we're, we're talking, we're, you know, every time they say a lie, we have to be telling the truth. I mean, that, that's the only antidote to lies is truth, radical truth telling. But when it comes, this is an, you know, one of the things that I talked about on my campaign is, yeah, the Republicans are lying, but the Democrats are telling too many half-truths. And when you go into a court of law, you raise your hand and you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And when it comes to race, that's an example. The Democratic Party too often tells the truth, but not telling the whole truth. Mm -hmm. And it's not telling nothing but the truth. And we have to get down to that level of, uh, of talk. And, and then that forms a constituency and then you elect people who are ready to do that. And it doesn't happen quickly, but it will happen. That's how I see it. Very well said. Everyone, if you have not had a chance to read it, please be sure to get a copy of Marianne's book, A Politics of Love, A Handbook for a New American Revolution. Marianne, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. And I hope that you will think of running for something. I'm on my crusade now, particularly young women. I hope that you will think, and maybe even with what you were talking about education, remember people with these kinds of views, we have to need to, we need to start being on things like school boards. So uh, I don't know what uh, stands in front of you there in Boston, but just having been with you now, uh, I just want to, I'm sure I'm not the only person who's, who said it to you, but I hope you see that in your future to run for something. Oh, thank you so much. You're so welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening. You can watch the video of this podcast at Sabby Sab's channel on YouTube.